Chapter 14, Deliverance. It took hours of trying before Sam finally pulled out, uh, pulled another brook trout from the stream. This one was larger and gave them almost enough food for a satisfying breakfast. Sam cleared his hands in the stream and carefully took his suit coat from the branch where he had hung it. It still looked clean. You know what's up to me, Dawn asked was as she prepared herself to move on. I think I can guess, but go, go ahead and tell me. This forest doesn't seem like anything I've ever seen about in England. Sam nodded. No fog, no ocean breezes, and relatively high elevation. I'm not sure, but I don't think England has any tall mountains. Yes, we're definitely in some now. Yes, Don agreed without enthusiasm. Well, let's <clears throat> find out where we are. I'm sure we're still in Europe, he said. Why? she asked. Because the stars at night are wrong. I didn't recognize the sky at all. I know the South African sky and the American sky. This one is different. Where do you think we are? What is a country near England that they could drive to in a single night which has, also has mountains? I have a vague memory of being in a helicopter, I think, Don said with uncertainty. We could be almost anywhere, perhaps France? If they took us in a helicopter, we could be anywhere, France or even further. I speak French, she commented. Oh, crap. Am I going to have to do a French accent? <laughs> I speak French, she commented as they started back toward the road. I doubt this is France. Why? Sam pushed his way through the tangle of undergrowth and held it open for dawn. The road stood a few yards before them. There was still no sign of cars. They were standing on the road when he finally answered her question. Because it would be too obvious. There has to be some element of implausibility. If the suggestion is ever made, they need to be able to laugh at the idea that they hauled us off that far in a single night just to get rid of us. Where then? Sam reached into his pocket and pulled out the paper money, studied it for a second, and handed it to her. It's a Swiss... It's a Swiss franc, she said with some amazement. That's what I thought, too. Oh, I think that was probably Sam. Sam and Don warily continued on, stopping to build fires and hunt for food. Time seemed to drag to a near crawl, and the unending forest stretched to some parody of eternity. They had been lost for five days when they unexpectedly heard distant rock and roll music in the wind. They quickened their pace, and a few minutes later, they hesitantly walked into a village. At the edge of town, the dirt road turned to cobblestone. The shops and homes were decidedly old made of large timbers and stone. They had steep, red-tiled roofs and looked like an illusion from the Hansel and Gretel illustration from the Hansel and Gretel storybook. The people in the village were all afoot. The, car, the few cars they saw were parked and dusty. The entire village was several blocks long and seemed to consist of a single row of buildings. They were primarily boutiques, clothing shops, gift shops, and ski equipment shops. It's a ski village. Don said with sudden understanding. Sam nodded. A tourist village. See that big lodge? Let's go there. Perhaps we can get help there, Don nodded silently. As they walked, Sam put on his jacket and dusted off his pants. Because he had been careful with his jacket and tie, he looked fairly fresh. His six days' growth of beard was long enough to look intentional. Don tried to tidy herself with somewhat less success. As long as no one got close enough to smell either of them, they would pass for tourists. For a ski village in the middle of summer, there was an amazing number of people milling around. Behind the lodge were two double chairlifts reaching up to the mountain. One of them was operating. Approximately every third chair had someone in it. 
It seemed as if the mountain attracted visitors all year round. Sam had to admit it was a charming village whose attractions were magical. The sprawling lodge was built of massive logs and dominated the village. It looked like a woodland castle and gave an enchanting an enchanted quality to the scene before them. Everything about the <clears throat> structure was larger than life. They walked up the steps onto the covered porch. A brass plaque beside the door informed them that they had arrived at the world-famous Schoenberg. <clears throat> I don't know, that just rolled off the tongue. I've never seen that word before. Hopefully I pronounced it right. An ornate set of doors stood invitingly open before them. Inside a room was a stunning mixture of rough logs, red velvet furnishings, and crystal. A huge crystal chandelier hung from the tall ceiling directly over an ornate grand piano. Golden lamps with silken shades stood beside French Renaissance furniture. Over the polished wooden floor lay rich Persian carpets. To the right, they saw a plush restaurant, saw a plush restaurant almost entirely decorated in red and gold. To their left sprawled a long hotel counter of highly polished wood. Their hunger commanded their feet and they turned right. A waitress showed them to a seat without as much as a glance at their crumpled clothing. She said something in another language, handed them the menu, smiled, and left. What language was she speaking, Sam asked, leaning toward Don. I'm sure it's German. A shame. I speak French, Italian, English, Afrikaans, but I don't speak German. Sam picked up the menu and tried to interpret it. Finally, he found a page written in English. After pointing it out to Don, he studied it carefully. A few minutes later, he pulled the note from his pocket. It was a ten-franc note. The items on the menu started at six and went as high as fifty. They found a sandwich for eight francs and ordered it on two plates. It was ambrosia, and nothing had ever tasted more divine to either of them. They ate slowly, sipping ice-cold water. It surprised them that they could just barely finish their half-sandwich. They sat and talked for a long time, but finally admitted that they had no idea what to do next. When the waitress came to take away their plates... Sam asked, excuse me, do you speak English? Yes, but a little. She replied, <laughs> voice heavy with guttural tones. <laughs> I'm just going to put her in an American accent. <laughs> she was young, about their age. I did study just some English in school, she continued. How are your holidays happening? She placed emphasis on her words in funny places. We are having quite an unusual holiday, Sam answered congenially. The South African people also called vacations holidays. So pleased. Did you have the long walk, she asked, nodding toward their crumpled clothing. Oh, yes. Well, actually, we got lost and walked longer than we wanted to. So sorry to get you lost, she said sympathetically, as if she were responsible. Next time, we take map at hotel counter. It will not get you lost, yes? Thanks. We'll take a map next time. So good. Is anything else wanting you to eat it? No. We're fine, thank you. What's the nearest city? Bern is the closest large city. Is there a bigger resort nearby? Sam asked on impulse, having no real reason to want that information. Why, yes. The most popular is the Alpenstein. It's on the next mountain range. It's very much biggest as this one is not. Sam handed her his only money. She nodded and slipped away. She returned moments later with change. Sam left some of it on the table, and they walked back out into the sunshine. It was pushing into afternoon. Don tugged on his sleeve. Sam, we need to find... Oh, Sam, we need to find a phone and call my dad. He can wire us some money. That's a good idea, Sam agreed. 
He was glad for the suggestion since he otherwise had no idea how to get money. They returned to the hotel and after going through three clerks finally found one who spoke English. The clerk finally understood that they wanted to make a collect phone call and directed them to a phone on a small table between two plush red chairs. Dawn had difficulty getting her operator to understand. At length, she put her hand over the mouthpiece. It's ringing, she said happily. When no answer was forthcoming, the operator interrupted the call. Dawn hung up the phone unhappily. Father's apparently not home. What about your parents? They just moved to Alaska. I had their new number in my wallet, but I don't have my wallet anymore. Let me try information. Sam took her place and after half an hour hung up the phone in frustration. He had not been able to make anyone understand his request for information. Several had been willing to connect him to America information, but wanted long distance fees. He longed for a simple dial zero for an operator, convenience of American telephones. Sam stood in frustration. Dawn's eyes followed him with concern. Sam looked down at her. I think we're stuck. Maybe you can try again in a few hours. Maybe your father will be back by then. Perhaps. However, I doubt my father knows anything has gone wrong. But even so, it's odd that he didn't leave someone to answer the phone in case I called. There's almost always a, a maid or butler at home. I'll try. In time, we'll get through. Dawn's eyes filled with tears. Oh, Sam, we'll just have to come up with another plan, or we're going to be sleeping outdoors and eating garbage. I'm not at all anxious to be arrested for vagrancy or panhandling in a foreign country. Sam did his best to reassure her, even though his own assessment of the situation was bleak. They sat in dejected silence for nearly an hour before a thought suddenly came to him. Since emerging from the forest, they hadn't thought to pray about their dilemma. Sam looked around, where they sat by the phones was private. Sam bowed his head and leaned close to Don. He prayed aloud, speaking in a whisper. His prayer was so spiritually satisfying, he had to remind himself nothing had changed yet to help them. Yet the peace was as significant as if all was exactly as it should be. Afterward, they felt they both felt the answer to their petition had already been granted, and all they needed to do was wait for the Lord to lay it before them. Sam opened his eyes to rest on the large grand piano, standing majestically in the center of the large room. It was open, no, it was upon a small raised die beneath the large chandelier. Surrounded by a dozen plush chairs in a semicircle, suddenly, quite unnervingly, he knew what to do. The solution was simple, yet more brash and bold than any part of him could have conceived. However, it was the answer to the humble prayers, and Sam rejoiced even while his heart trembled. He stood and found an English-speaking clerk. Can I speak to a manager, one who speaks English? The clerk frowned as if unsure one even existed, then hurried away. What are you going to do? Don asked. I'm going to put into motion the answer to our prayers, he explained happily. Don smiled at him, a quizzical look on her face. A short time later, an older gentleman walked briskly toward them. As he approached, his eyes took in their uh, crumpled condition. His smile was forced and seemingly superficial. How may I help you? he asked pleasantly. Sam stuck out his hand, which the manager shook. I'm Sam Mahoy, a musician from America. My companion and I are traveling in your country. We are apparently obliged to spend a few days in your village. We seem to now have an opportunity to rest from our tour. The manager seemed pleased and a bit puzzled. It was as if he were playing through his memories to find any uh, mention of an American musician named Samuel Mahoy staying in his hotel. Sam decided to lay the rest of his plan in motion before questions or objections began flying. After arriving here, we realized we brought 
were brought here by mistake. Our luggage and instruments have been sent to another destination, perhaps back to America or to the Alpenstein. We don't know, so we have no reservations here. Ah, yes, I see your dilemma, the manager nodded thoughtfully. The mention of his competitor's hotel made him flinch. Fortunately, it is summer and we can accommodate you. Would you like me to book you a room? Thank you. We will need your best room, of course. Certainly, the manager said smoothly. We will need room service to bring most of our meals to the room and a telephone. It will be as you say, he soothed, and the manager made a note in his pad. Anything else, Herr Mahoy? There is something else, Sam said smoothly. I need to practice my instruments. I would prefer a private practice room if you have one. At the Alpenstein, I would probably be doing several evening performances, but this will be a much better. I will just practice. The cash register in the manager's mind clanked happily. Our finest piano in the large one in the lobby, which you are most welcome to use. In exchange for the use of the piano, would you allow me to announce your, um, practices? Perhaps more people would come. Would you mind if we charged admission? It is a slow season, after all. A little more revenue would be appreciated. I said I want to practice. If this is to be a performance, I will find no rest in it, Sam answered haughtily. Perhaps I will just skip the practicing. No, no, forgive me. Perhaps we could benefit one another here. As I said, it is the slow season, and our rooms stand empty. If I made your room, meals, and daytime hours complimentary, you could relax as if you like during the day, and provide us with but small, several small, shall we say, practices during the evenings. Would that be agreeable? Playing her part to the hilt, Don placed a slender hand on Sim's arm solicitously. Don't do it, Samuel. You need your rest, she said in a silken, pouty voice. Sam patted her hand. Yes, my love, I do. Perhaps if I could call it practice, and it's brief, the rest would be grand. And the manager is so is being so generous, a few more public practices would be much more relaxing than an actual performance. I've never done anything like that. It's up to you, as always, she smiled sweetly and gave him a long-distance kiss. Sam hesitated a few moments before turning to the manager, who was anxiously awaiting his reply. All right, then, Sam agreed in uh, apparent reluctance. What he had was really doing was frantically trying to pump up his courage to say what had just popped into his mind. Accompanied by the glow of the spirit, he knew the idea was right, but it was more than he could f normally force from his mouth. Sam took a deep breath. I can promise no more than three public practices. After that, we shall see. I will expect a week's accommodations, meals, and tours, all complimentary. I will also expect one half of gross ticket sales. We will reimburse you for the other expenses at the end of the week from ticket sales. That will be acceptable, the manager said in a tightly controlled voice. I will have the mailman show you to your room. It will take me a while to find instruments for you. Do you require any other than the piano? He asked as he made notes. Just a flute and a violin, Sam replied as if bored. Do you have a performance con <clears throat> a preference concerning the instruments, such as manufacture or anything else I should ask for? They must be of the highest quality and have the piano tuned. It is, If it is in the slightest out of tune, I will not perform, regardless of how many tickets you have sold. Certainly, certainly, I agree. Well, I have my afternoon cut out for me. You two enjoy your rest. Would seven o'clock be agreeable for your first performance? Practice, Sam corrected him. Yes, of course. I will be down at seven. Splendid. The manager shook his hand, bowed to Dawn, and hurried away. Their room was the same stunning mixture of rough and regal. The walls were hewn logs, and the furnishings French. 
The bread's bed was an intricately stitched silken comforter, the color of cream, with huge pillows of the same color. Their room was large enough to be an apartment. Don walked through it, feigning dissatisfaction, and then accepted the keys from the bellman. The bellman held out his hand for a tip. Don gave him such a disapproving frown that he lowered his hand and backed out the door. Don frowned, as if ashamed of herself. I'll make it up to him later, she said, and turned in a full circle, inspecting the room with a childlike smile. This is wonderful. What do you have in mind? Would you mind if I clean up first? I feel so filthy. Please, Sam said, bowing and motioning toward the large bath. Ladies first. As soon as the door was closed, Sam returned to the elevator and to the lobby. There were several shops in the foyer, one of which had beautiful dresses. He found a long, lovely dress for Dawn, light blue and delicate white lace. He had also bought her a pair of jeans, a sweatshirt, and tennis shoes, charging them all to the room. It took longer to find a pair of white dress shoes, but he was satisfied. When he explained that they had lost their luggage, the sales lady became nearly indignant at the few things he had purchased for his wife. After asking him several specific questions about Don's age, weight, and height, she rounded up a whole box of things, including makeup, underwear, and other items. He wasn't sure how they knew Don's sizes, but the sales lady seemed supremely confident in her selections. Unsure of what some of it was for, and afraid to see a single price tag, Sam quit watching halfway through. In the end, he had quite a bundle of things for Don. For himself, Sam bought a white shirt, new tie, socks, pair of jeans, and a sweatshirt. He also bought a wristwatch. He left his suit jacket to be laundered. He insisted that he have it back by six. For an extra fee, they guaranteed it. He charged it all to their room. Don was still in the bath when he had returned. He left the clothing he had purchased for her on a chair outside the bath. He slipped into his new jeans and called for room service to pick up his crumpled slacks. He ordered a meal, delivered at six, and lay down. He was asleep before he got to the pillows suggested. Sam awoke to a gentle chiming on their door. He glanced at the clock on the wall and was surprised to see that three hours had passed in an instant. Dawn was asleep beside him, her hair splayed out, on, out in a rainbow of luxuriant gold. She looked childlike and innocent in her sleep. At that moment, she stirred and stretched slowly. He stood, walked into the next room, and opened the door. A cart filled with food was rolled in. Heavenly aromas emanated from the covered dishes. He added a generous tip to the ticket and signed it. The waiter smiled and backed out of the room. Don came out of the bedroom wearing the jeans and sweatshirt. They ate in silence, their bodies still unaccustomed to food. Sam's suit arrived by the time he stepped from the shower. He looked clean and professional. Don looked stunning in her new dress. She turned s smoothly to show it to him. Oh, Sam, thank you for buying this dress. It's beautiful, and just what I would have picked out for myself. It was the very thoughtful of you and unexpected. She thanked him with a kiss on the cheek. He dismissed it with mock uh, with a mock aristocratic wave of his wrist. Our public demands it. Don grew serious and sat on the edge of the bed of somewhat defeated air. Are you up for this? she asked skeptically. Truthfully, no, he admitted. I'm not a professional performer, and they will be able to tell that. During my mission, I baptized a wonderful couple that owned a music store. I must have spent a thousand hours playing in his store. I found, or maybe discovered, that I could play anything in almost any way I liked. <clears throat> it was an amazing unveiling of this musical being within me. You never told me that. She, That makes me feel a whole lot better about tonight, Don said with relief. 
Sam shrugged apologetically. We baptized quite a few people who came to hear us. When I was younger, I was ashamed of my musical ability, and I guess I just refused to let others see it. I'm confident I can entertain them tonight. I know lots of music, but I'm just as sure that I'm nowhere near a world-class musician. Sam scratched his head thoughtfully. That's why I insisted on this being a practice. I haven't been able to put together a program in my head. If I'm not convincing, they'll cancel the whole deal, and we'll be out on the street again, or worse. Dawn stood gracefully, raising a hand in a pose of someone about to perform. Sam, I have some voice training. I'm not a professional either, but I, I, I've been told I could be. Sam brightened. That's right. I have heard you sing, and you're really good. What do you know that I can play? Well, I know many of the church hymns. I know some opera and some Christmas music. Christmas won't help. What else? Lots of things, but probably not much you would know. Wait, what about the Lord's Prayer? I can do that in Latin and English. Yes, that would be wonderful. Do you know Gnod's Virgin? Yes, I believe that's the arrangement I learned. Is that the most famous one? Sam didn't answer her question, but stood in silence for a moment. When he looked up, her eyes were confident. Don, I just had an idea. What, Sam? We have a wonderful opportunity to bless people's lives with this performance. It's obvious that Heavenly Father has intervened in our affairs. I feel strongly as if we do it his way and use this as an opportunity to bear testimony. We will be successful because it truly is who we are. We won't be pretending, or people will recognize that. I, f uh, yeah. I feel impressed to give the music that is uplifting rather than just entertaining. What if we shift the whole emphasis to something we both love? Let's testify of the Lord's love for us with music this evening. Let's give people something to warm their hearts and uplift their souls. Dawn clasped her hands and pressed them to her lips, her eyes sparkling with happiness. I know this is what we should do. It feels so right. If we fail to impress the hotel, at least we'll do something good. I love the idea. Sam nodded and knelt down before a plush sofa. Dawn joined him and placed her hands atop his. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this chance to be a blessing to the people here in this hotel. We confess our dependence on thee and our weaknesses. I know my own disobedience has plunged me into this trial, and I humble myself and beg forgiveness of thee. I am sorry for the guile that I use this day. No matter how great our needs, Father, we would like to bear testimony of thy love and thy gospel this evening. And we ask thy spirit to work upon those who hear that they will be touched, uplifted, and brought nearer to thee. We thank thee for hearing our plea and give thee all of our love, honor, and praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen, Don echoed solemnly. During the prayer, a feeling of peace fell over Sam. He knew no more of the outcome of their practice than before, but he knew somehow they would, be, they, they would succeed. Even if they were pitched out of the hotel on their ears, someone among those who heard would be blessed and would eventually be led to salvation because of this performance. It seemed more than sufficient, and both raised their hearts relaxed. Everything else seemed trivial. The hotel management had done a thorough job of getting an audience. Sam and Don arrived a little early, and Sam had a few moments to inspect the instruments. As people jockeyed for the few remaining seats, he quietly turned and warmed the instruments. The violin was very old, and its tone was rich and vibrant. The flute was newer and had a sweet, mellow tone that he liked. The big grand was perfectly tuned. He quietly played part of an intricate piece to limber his fingers. The instrument was superb. An appreciative hush fell over the audience as they listened to him warming up. By the time the manager stepped before the piano, there was little more than a hundred people gathered. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Hr. Johan Mulstein, general manager of the Schoenachrug. 
We are pleased to welcome Samuel Mahoy, a famous musician from America, to our hotel. This he said in English and then added, Guten Vendramen und Herren. I don't know what I'm reading. <laughs> My name is Herr Roman Johann Mürsin, General Director des Schronenburgers. We freuen uns Ramhil Mahoy in Burgheimer Mürsikte und Amerika zu unserem Hotel zu begrüßen. <laughs> that was so brutal. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he was answered with moderate applause. Chemahoy is with us this evening unexpected and has agreed to share with us a short evening of music. <laughs> This is not a scheduled performance, and he prefers to call it a practice. We thank him warmly for his indulging us in this. Without further ado, we present Samuel Mahoy. Sam stepped forward and bowed slightly. He held out a hand toward Dawn, and she joined him. As he spoke, the manager translated, Thank you very much. May I introduce my companion, Dawn? Again, more light applause. Don rarely performs with me, yet since this is, in fact, a practice, she has graciously agreed to join me this evening. I hope you will enjoy her. Don bowed graciously to polite clapping. Sam smiled genially. Usually when I perform, I am obliged to play whatever I consider my audience wishes to hear. However, since this evening is, for me, a practice, I have set my heart upon playing what I like. Will you indulge me in this? He was answered with the same low-key applause. Sam sat at the piano and adjusted his seat. The audience grew quiet. He threw his head back majestically and then forward to study the keys, as if preparing himself for what some great feat of musical extravagance. In reality, he had not yet decided what to play, and the longer he waited, the less sure he became. He placed his fingers upon the keys and still had no idea what to play. He felt a restless stir from the audience. He gave a silent prayer for help, and a long-forgotten song popped into his head. It was a preposterous choice, yet it was all that came to mind. He had been expecting to play something devotional, worshipful, and inspirational. Instead, his fingers danced across the keys in a light-hearted rendition of Dizzy Fingers. The music was lightning-fast, running up and down the keyboard in a comedy of d misplaced accidentals and playful harmonies it was almost jazz almost ragtime and exactly perfect people tapped their toes and by the end of the number were clapping in time he prolonged the piece by repeating the showy part and ended with a sudden flourish the applause was spontaneous and hearty sam relaxed and so did don he had won his audience and hereafter anything he played would be acceptable to them he glanced at Herr Mulsin, who was beaming from ear to ear. He nodded enthusiastically towards Sam, who had sent him a smile full of confidence he had not yet felt just seconds before. Thank you very much, he said, still seated at the piano. You like American ragtime, I see. The applause came in loud agreement. I do too. Ragtime is an American convention. It started in the early 1900s and continues to be a favorite in some parts of America today. Almost any song can be played in ragtime. Do you recognize this? He played a line or two of Happy Birthday. He was pleased when the applause came back affirmative. He shifted the bass to a slow ragtime. The people laughed and clapped. He picked up the pace and finished the song with a vigorous splash. While they were still clapping, he played a long, minor run, followed in a mi into a minor key, and played a heavy, booming introduction of Massive Nature. This is how Bach would have played Happy Birthday. He continued to play a thunderous bass, majestically interspersing the melody into the song. 
he switched into a rousing March rendition of the same song. This is how John Philip Sosa was, would have played it. Happy Birthday marched through the hall as precisely as a military brass band. Without waiting for a break in the applause, he transposed the song into a flowering waltz. Before he could say a word, someone shouted, Johann Strauss, from the audience. The rendition of Happy Birthday seemed to please everyone, and he played it through twice. People were still clapping as Sam began to play a few passages he knew from the introduction of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. He knew he couldn't finish what he had started and wondered if he had, was playing and wondered, as he was playing, why he had begun it. He came to an abrupt halt and turned toward the audience. A startled look was on their faces. Beethoven was a very sick man, I think. I'm told he suffered from constipation. <laughs> okay. A ripple of laughter flowed across the room. The manager quickly interpreted in German, and more laughter rolled toward him. As a matter of fact, some believe he wrote special music to celebrate his success, and this is why we call them movements today. Sam began to play the same overture again. What am I reading? <laughs> Played the same overture again and interrupted himself to say, he wrote this to celebrate his ninth. He was still playing when the interpretation brought a peal of laughter from the crowd. <laughs> when silence followed, he added, my apologies to Victor Borga. This also brought laughter from his audience. Sam's fingers floated across the keys, changing both mood and tempo. His heart felt full as the music changed, deepening in feeling. He changed keys, progressing through a rich succession of major sevenths and ninths. He had never played quite this way before, and he changed keys again. A familiar feeling came over him quite unexpectedly, as the dews from heaven to ceiling came forth in worshipful yet joyful harmony. He glanced at the audience and noticed some there with looks of recognition, a few with peace on their faces. Still playing, he said, I see some of you know this beautiful music. A scattering of applause affirmed his suspicion. This is the theme song of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, he told them while still playing. Applause encouraged him to continue. I love another song, the choir sings. Do you want to hear it? A chorus of ya yeah and yes and we signaled their happy agreement. The music switched to the Lord's Prayer. There was power in the air, and his heart sang his fingers gave life to his joy. He nodded to Dawn, who walked to the side of the piano. Her voice was steady, sweet, and rich. Even with knowing that she sang well, he was stunned by the beauty and the sound from her lips. He clasped her she clasped her hands before her and sang in a voice more rich and vibrant than he had any he had heard. Tears rolled down her cheeks as she sang, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory for ever. Amen. Sam stood and embraced her as the applause thundered in the large room. Few eyes were dry. A song came to mind with sudden impact. Sam leaned forward and whispered a question. She smiled and nodded. Without comment, he began the introduction to O Divine Redeemer. Whoa, why did I get choked up all of a sudden? Okay. <laughs> this is a fictional story, Cam. Fictional. Partly real, but fictional. <laughs> Dawn's voice was plaintive as she began, then powerful, sure, and worshipful. She had never heard a more glorious rendition of this precious and powerful music. Dawn sang it as if she herself had written every word. Sam's heart thrilled to the very marrow of his soul as she sang the glorious words. Ah, turn me not away. Receive me, though unworthy. 
Uh, turn me not away, receive me, though unworthy. Hear thou my cry. Hear thou my cry. Behold, Lord, my distress. Answer me from thy throne. Haste thee, Lord, to mine aid. Thy pity show in my deep anguish. Thy pity show in my deep anguish. Let not the sword of vengeance smite me, though righteous thine anger, O Lord. <laughs> I've never read the song like this before. Shield me in danger. O oh, regard me. O oh, thee, Lord, alone will I call. O oh, divine redeemer. O oh, divine redeemer. I pray thee grant me pardon, and remember not, remember not my sins. Forgive me. O divine Redeemer, I pray thee, grant me pardon, and remember not, remember not, O Lord, my sins. Save in the day of retribution, O thee, Lord alone will I call. O divine Redeemer, have mercy, help me my savior for the briefest second after the music ceased there was a silence of deep reverence and then an explosive applause that seemed to go on indefinitely <laughs> sam glanced at the clock and was surprised to see that over an hour had elapsed he returned to dawn's side and waited for the applause to end when it ended, there was an electric silence in the air. After thanking them for their kindness, Sam said, It is time for us to depart. We have a wonderful evening with you. A rumble of pro polite protest came from the crowd, and the manager came forth, his hands raised, palms down, to quiet them. Please, my friends, Chem Hoy and the lovely Don have traveled far, and they must rest. They have consented to play again tomorrow. Please tell your friends. There will be a small admission to cover their expenses, but the performance will be longer. He glanced slightly at Sam, who nodded slightly. This brought a happy murmur from the crowd. Oh, there's another. <laughs> German. Abis haben weidas died flot nok die violon gespielt. But you have not played the flute nor the violin, a man protested from the front row. At least give us one piece on them, and we will consent. We insist. Ah, the manager cried, following his translation into English. A command performance, then, he turned to Sam. What do you say? I think they will not leave quietly if you refuse. Sam nodded, and the crowd burst into applause. Don turned to follow the manager away, but Sam caught her elbow. He whispered something in her ear, and she nodded. She asked something further. No, he asked something further, and again she nodded. He smiled and picked up the flute. He turned back toward the crowd. Since it's almost bedtime, I think it fitting to play a piece I learned as a child, and one which my mother used to sing me to sleep with. Perhaps it will put you to sleep too. The crowd laughed as he put a flute to his lips. He played an introduction of lilting, breathy runs, which evolved from intricate to worshipful. His heart remembered his mother's voice, then his little brother Jimmy, who had once loved this song so well. The music went on until it became subdued with reverence. At this moment, Don began to sing in Italian. I am a child of God. Sam had never heard the words in Italian and found them more beautiful, more melodious, and more wondrous than ever before. 
He himself became a spectator, an onlooker with wondering eyes at her beautiful voice as her beautiful voice bore witness to the most important relationship one may discover in this life. When it was over, the crowd jumped to their feet in ovation. Sam felt overwhelmed and somewhat embarrassed. He had expected no such ovation and certainly claimed no credit for this evening. He just knew his prayer had been lavishly answered and lives had been touched for good. They walked from the piano, hand in hand, the applause still thundering behind them. It did not cease until the doors to the elevator closed behind them. Back in their room, they knelt in prayer and Don thanked Heavenly Father for the, this marvelously unexpected blessing. A short while ago, they had been fugitives, penniless and friendless. Where all had been bleak and starvation seemed their future, now they were being applauded and treated like celebrities. It was a fascinating turn of events. Sam quietly made himself a bed on the long sofa, and Don closed the door between them. It was a night of great peace for them both. Sam awoke slowly to a gentle chiming. He pulled on his pants and stumbled to the door. A waiter rolled a food cart into their room. Sam signed the ticket. Complimentary was written in big letters across the bottom. The cart contained every breakfast food known to him, and a few unknown. There was also a bottle of chilled wine, which made him smile. The waiter rolled the cart to the table and quickly laid out the food. In a few minutes, he was gone. Dawn emerged a few moments later, with her head wrapped in a towel. She kissed him on the cheek and sat opposite him. After prayer, they ate a hearty breakfast. Shortly after breakfast, they reached Dawn's father by telephone. He was tremendously relieved to find her safe. He took their address and arranged for delivery to deliver money and a copy of her passport by courier. Sam was still not able to reach his parents, but he did get his uncle in Alaska, who promised to relay the message. Sam was able to, also able to reach the American Embassy in Bern and arranged to get another passport. It seemed as if their troubles were nearly past. In the meantime, they had an entire day to do nothing but relax. The next evening's practice was more successful than the first. Over 200 people attended. The third and final performance was attended by upwards of 400 people, many of them standing, with every inch of the hall, big hall filled. As with the prior two performances, the Holy Spirit was there and their humble petition was granted. Lives were touched and they were able to bear witness both in song and word. In addition to the money Don's father sent, their little concert tour was a monetary success. Sam learned that some of the people had paid $50 a seat for the final performance, and many were turned away. By the time they were ready to leave the hotel, they had purchased new luggage, a fair wardrobe, plane tickets home, and had nearly $1,000 in traveler's checks. Sam's heart rejoiced as they waited for their train to arrive to take them down the mountain. Since the small train station was but a short walk from the hotel, the manager accompanied them by carrying Don's bag. He seemed subdued. Chemahoy, he finally said. By his tone, Sam uh, knew he had something serious in his mind. Please, t please to tell me something, if I can. Are you really a famous musician from America? Sam shook his head and glancing at Don, who was smiling coyly, awaiting his answer with obvious interest. I didn't say I was famous. Johan, the manager, nodded. Yes, I recall the conversation. The distinction did not occur to me at that time. How did you come to our village? I assume you are not on tour either. I have been on tour, but only part of it was a musical tour. I was on a, I was a missionary. We came here because we were kidnapped and dumped here. Is this so? Have you contacted the police? Are you still in danger? Here, Mielstein added all in one breath. It was someone in English customs who did it. We aren't sure who. 
We had something valuable they wanted, and they eventually took it from us. We feel lucky to have gotten away with our lives. Ach, he said and spat on the ground symbolically. The English are madmen. I trust them less than lions. Sam laughed, and the manager smiled, but he was mostly serious. Sam was surprised Hermiusin did not pump them for more details, but he seemed satisfied by that simple explanation. In fact, something more important was on the manager's mind. Chemahoy, when I first saw you sitting in my lobby, I decided before you spoke to me that you were either lost or on the run. You both had that trapped and helpless look on you. Would you like to know why I did not have you both thrown out on the street and arrested? Sam was startled by his candor. Why, yes, he answered, more than a little curious. There were two reasons, actually. The first was that despite your crumpled appearance, your suit jacket was neat and clean. For some reason, that impressed me, since you had obviously been through. How do you Americans say it? Through Hades, I think? Don chuckled. They do have a similar expression, I believe. Oh, that was Don, sorry. <laughs> Johan smiled. Pleased to have... Pleased at having made Don laugh, but quickly grew serious again. Second, it was because you asked me for nothing, but waited for me to ask you. I have always found that when someone is trying to cheat you, they will tr make their proposal first and very convincingly. This impressed me that you were confident enough to wait for me to propose a solution to your dilemma. I had no idea. I just knew what I had been impressed to do. It is very good that you are obedient to your feelings. I routinely expel undesirables from my hotel. You will never know how close you came to being in a Swiss jail. Actually, Sam said thoughtfully, we were never in any danger. We were on God's errand and in his hands. There is no greater safety. I can see that this is so, Chaim Yosin agreed enthusiastically. So now you will continue your tour? Sam took Don's hand as in his before answering. His voice was wistful. I wish I could, but that's finished. Now we'll go back to America. I see, Johan replied, and after a pause he added, I must tell you that as soon as you began to play, I decided immediately you are not a professional musician. Don't misunderstand me, I think you play as well, but you have not the polish, you see. Sam nodded. The manager continued, however, I have scarcely ever heard more beautiful and more heart-touching music. How can this be? Tell me, what is the difference about you? Why is it that I feel happiness inside when you make the music? Many make music to the ears. You two make music of the heart. This is... This I must know why, he said emphatically. Sam pondered this as the train slid next to the platform. I will tell you why, and you will have to decide what the truth is. It is because with every song, we are testifying that Jesus is the Christ. Every note professes our love for him. When people with an honest heart hear such music, it makes them happy inside. It touches their heart. Chaim nodded thoughtfully. I understand this answer you make. I also believe in Jesus, but it is a quiet place in my heart where he lives, and I do not know him as a joy to fill my whole soul as you do. How do you come to know him so well? Sam took a step closer to him. I will tell you because you are a good man, and because perhaps the whole purpose of our coming to this part of the world was to deliver this message to you. I came to know him because God has once again called a living prophet upon the earth, and because his true church is alive once again. Millions of people have come to know Christ in exactly the same way as I have. I wish this for myself and my family also, please, he replied loudly. Tell me where is this church, and where may I find this joy in my Christ? The official name is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I have heard this name before. I am remembering that my wife had two young ladies that were nuns in this church came teach us one time. Nuns? 
Don asked, surprised. Yes, they were sisters in the Latter-day Church, nuns, he explained soberly. Sam chuckled. We don't have nuns. Sister is not a title, but means a, recon uh, a means of recognizing their dedication and service as missionaries. Their host seemed genuinely relieved. Ah, he cried. I thought at the time they were very young to be nuns. This seemed much better, yes. So I know a little of the... <laughs> this accent is evolving, I'm sorry. <laughs> So I know a little of the church in the latter days. My wife very much liked and believed about it, but I have not listened so carefully to their words. They spoke in heavy American accents, and I grew weary of listening. So I came to think it was not so true at the time the nuns came, he replied, a voice serious but jovial. It is really, as you say, has God made once again the prophets to speak? With all my heart, I testify that it is so today, as it was when Peter walked the earth. What you say both thrills and confuses me, but I have felt something from your words and songs that I have not felt before, and I promise I will once again investigate this latter-day prophet and this joy that lights your faces. I think this is a good thing, he concluded. I'm convinced it is, Sam agreed as Don's voice similar feelings. After exchanging addresses, the kindly manager helped them board the small open cars. I now have your address, and I shall write you when I know when I have found the prophet and this Jesus of whom you have taught me. God bless you, Samuel McCoy, Don, and with angel's voice, he said with, uh, as he bowed formally. Sam's voice was subdued. He reached outside the small train and took Johann Mulstein's hand in a firmly grip. Thank you, my friend, he said. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord lift up your countenance upon you and give you peace, Goliath, Johann replied. The train moved slowly away from the platform. Neither Sam nor Don had ever so much as heard of a cogwheel train, let alone been on one. It looked as if it had been a belonged in a carnival. The cars were only two persons wide and open on all sides. One could reach out and catch leaves from slowly passing trees. On level ground, the seats reclined back almost 45 degrees, making it like sitting back in a recliner chair. The small steam engine had a large gear wheel in the exact center. Between the two rails was a cogged rail. The big gear in the engine ran on this center rail, thus propelling the train. They soon found out why this was so. The train left the station, turned a corner, and almost immediately began a steep descent. In minutes, the train was going down an incline so steep that Sam and Don found themselves sitting perfectly upright in the car. Had the seats been in a normal position, the passengers would have fallen forward out of the train. At this steep angle, they could see over the top of the forward cars and were able to look right into the small engine. One man was busily shoveling coal, and another was studiously watching the track ahead with his hand on several levers. The little train puffed and hissed its way for many minutes to the bottom. Upon arriving at the lower station, Sam and Don walked a hundred yards to another terminal. Don inched up to the handrail and gasped. Before them, a drop of many thousand feet yawned like a edge of the world. Did I ever tell you I'm afraid of heights? Oh, that was her. She whispered urgently. Sam looked at the panorama beyond the guardrail. Are you? Uh, I wasn't until just a second ago. <laughs> she said, seriously, I can't do my accents. I'm so sorry. I should just stick with English. Okay. Now I think I am. Sam took her arm. At least we'll die together. Wrong answer, she replied and smacked his arm. 
They boarded a gondola swinging on a cable that appeared far too frail for the job at hand. They began a dizzying descent from a fantastic height. They dropped quickly to a lower terminal and got out. Dawn looked back up. We have to go back up, she said nervously. Why? I think my stomach's still up there. They found their bus to burn and showed their tickets. The bus drove for several hours down steep, winding roads. They stopped twice at a small villages that appeared to have been peeled from a picture postcard. Each village had a narrow cobblestone streets and a dozen small shops, two dozen ancient Swiss chalet-style homes, and a small picturesque Catholic church. Each village also had a large, ornate fountain in its main square. They were nestled against a long lake on one side of the steep mountains on the other. Not even the fact that Sam and Don were anxious to pursue their journey home could detract them from the ma magical charm of the ancient countryside. They were walking past a watchmaker shop when Sam suddenly stopped walking. What's wrong? My camera. I no longer have my camera. We're in the middle of the most photographed country on earth, and I don't have a camera. You're right. Don cried, glancing at her watch. We have time to get one before the bus leaves. They quickly located a shop and bought a modest camera. Sam nearly wore it out before nightfall. They finally arrived in Bern and took a hair-raising taxi ride to the American Embassy, where Sam picked up his duplicate passport. Standing outside the embassy, Don gripped Sam's arm to stop him from hailing a taxi. There's no way I'm getting back into one, into another one of those again, she groaned. I'm still shaking from the last ride. Sam agreed. They finally found a bus to the airport. It seemed like a long time since they had left South Africa. It seemed like two months instead of just over two weeks ago. At last, they were on their way home. Dawn finally felt like taking talking about her ordeal with the English customs police. It had been much worse for her than for Sam. He listened in horror as she described her experience in detail. They had determined, uh, they had been determined, thorough, and brutal. They had terrorized her and deprived her of food, privacy, and even sleep. They had repeatedly forced her to disrobe, submit to protracted personal indignities, and then left her without clothing for hours, shivering on a cold metal chair. Though they left no physical scars, Dawn walked away with wounds aplenty that would take many years to heal. Sam held her hand, and she concluded, as she concluded her tale of horror. I'm so sorry this has happened to you, he told her through clenched teeth. It makes me furious. Don shrugged. I've been thinking about it a lot, actually. In the end, they won. I broke down and told them what they wanted to know. I caused us both a lot of unnecessary pain. Sam disagreed. You know what I think? I think it was probably the fact that you did break that saved our lives. When they retrieved the stone from the sewage tank, they knew you had told them everything you knew. You said the stone they found was nearly worthless. Why would your father's people switch stones? I thought about that, too. If they had found nothing, they would have continued to brutalize me. When the stone turned out to be nearly valueless, they knew two things. First, that I had told the truth, and second, that the stone, that, that someone with a lot of power and money knew they were holding me. They let it go because they were afraid to do anything else, she concluded with certainty. Including layovers, it took three days to fly to Alaska. During those days, Sam and Don talked, ate, and slept, all in the same seats. By the time they were able to get off the plane for good, their legs had, could barely support them. Halfway between Seattle and Anchorage, Sam shaved and combed his hair in the tiny restroom on the plane. Don also freshened up and somehow emerged looking tired but beautiful. The Anchorage airport was surprisingly large for such a remote location. Sam watched the buildings glide by, his heart pounding in his ears. Even though he had called his parents to let them know his plans, he had no idea if he would be welcomed with a loving embrace or a hero's welcome, so to speak, or meet an embraced disgrace.
uh, or meet in embarrassed disgrace. It seemed as if he had been gone for years, two wonderful years serving the Lord and two nightmare years trying to get home. Finally, the plane jerked to a stop and the rattle of seat belt buckles signaled the end of their long journey. Sam could not bring himself to stand. Tears strained to escape his eyes and his heart seemed to skip to a stop. He felt a hand on his on his, and looked up into Dawn's eyes. She was standing, smiling down at him. It seemed almost as if she were a foot taller than normal, and he had the impression she was looking sharply upward to see her. Your family loves you, she said, as if she could read his mind. They will always love you. You are the eldest, beloved son and hero. Nothing could change that. And you know I speak the truth, for the Spirit is upon me. Sam closed his eyes and realized the warmth of the Holy Spirit was upon him as well. It vanquished all his fears, and he stood with confidence. When he looked back at dawn, she had shrunk back to her normal size. He blinked twice, knowing that he had just seen a miracle of sorts. He paused long enough to fervently thank Heavenly Father for his gentle mercies and love, most of all, his love. All of Sam's family were there, crowded as close around the door as velvet ropes permitted. They spotted him as he rounded the first corner, and they laughed and pointed and shouted. His parents looked the same as when he had left. Mom was crying as it should be. Dad was beaming also as it should be. Angela and Beth, the twins, were grown up. They were 18, beautiful, and dressed exactly alike. They both cried tears of joy as they waved at him. Benjamin was 13 and bigger, much bigger. He had lost the softness of youth and taken on the angles of manhood. Sam had, look, had to look twice to realize it was his little brother standing there grinning at him. Little Rachel was 11 and no longer so little. Of all those who were the most, uh, who were there to meet him, she had changed the most. She was grown from a child to practically a young woman, and the change was startling. He had not, they had, huh, had they not sent him photos, he would not have been able to pick her out of a crowd. She radiated joy as she pranced from foot to foot. Sam and his family rushed toward one another with a united shout of joy. With the rope still between them, they fell into his arms. He felt his back being patted, his arms, hands, fingers being patted and held in his face covered with kisses and tears. It was all he had imagined and much more. It was perfect. Suddenly they were asking questions, so many questions. He tried to answer them, to tell of his joy. No one mentioned his two-week delay. There would be a lot of fence mending, but until then it was enough to be home. With a sudden realization, he remembered Dawn. As politely as he could, Sam untangled himself and turned to Dawn. She was waiting almost directly behind him. He motioned for her to join him. He was surprised to see there were tears in her eyes as well. There was a wistful, almost lost expression in her face. Mom, Dad, everybody, this is Dawn. There was the briefest moment of awkwardness, and then his mother gathered her into her arms. A moment later, he was standing alone, watching his family make her one of their own. He had to smile, for he knew what she was experiencing. He had watched them love and welcome strangers into their home many times. It was a powerful thing, almost palpable a sense of belonging. He felt his heart sing as the expression of Dawn's face turned from lost to loved. Suddenly, quite unexpectedly, she was home as well. She does look like a princess, Ben said almost to himself, as if he had said something startlingly vulgar. Everyone turned toward him. He blushed and blustered. Well, you said she lived in a castle. Doesn't that make her a princess? I suppose it does, Sam laughed. He turned to Don. How does it feel to suddenly be royalty? Don blushed. Your family is far more wonderful than you could have ever told me, Sam. It makes me feel like royalty to f feel so loved and accepted. She lowered her eyes. But I became royalty when you baptized me, and I became a daughter of God. It, 
it was such a perfect answer, such a noble response, that she quietly changed identity in everyone's mind. She evolved, emerged, and was born again. She became not just a princess, but capital princess. From that moment on, it would be the only name they called her, and it thrilled her to the very center of her being. Home, suddenly the word meant worlds more than ever before. She was home, and her soul rejoiced. <laughs>